Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. squad and welcome to ranks fc it's your favorite football podcast back for another week my name is jack collins and i will be your host today as we talk about three teams in particular who we're very excited for next season i know this season hasn't ended yet um but we thought that with it all coming to a head in the next couple of weeks we're going to be a lot we're going to be doing a lot of talking about the end and the denouement of this season we're going to just quickly touch on next season before we get into that mad passage at the end of this one and joining me is the rank god mr sam tai Hello, my friend. Hello, mate. And returning from his trip to America, it's our transfer guru. Welcome back, Mr. Dean Jones. Hello, mate. How are you doing? I'm very good, very good, mate. Um, finally had some rest since coming back. So, yeah, had a lovely time in Chicago. Um, knew I loved the place already. Love it even more now. Um, maybe I'll move there one day. Who knows? Who knows? Stop Who threatening knows? to move to the US. Stop threatening oh to leave God. us. It's well, a, I, am I am definitely going to live in the US at some point, aren't I? Let's face it. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully not anytime soon. Um, we'll be talking a little bit more about your trip at the end of the episode. Um, but for now, let's get into things we love because afterwards we're going to have a very special guest joining us as well. But Dean, why don't you kick us off with things we love? I mean, we just have to talk about Man City 2, Liverpool 2. I mean, these two teams are just unbelievable and the the level at which they're playing I think is unprecedented in English football I think we've got a title race unlike anything we've ever seen because not only are these the two you know leagues away from anybody else in England right now they're the best two teams in the whole of Europe I don't think we've seen a domination like that um in my lifetime like I think through like past great teams that I've seen like the Arsenal Invincibles uh, the United team the, the Chelsea teams under Mourinho and none of them were really playing at this consistent level of of Liverpool and Man City in terms of Oh, just just everything like the quality of their play the intensity and that that game was just insane and all you know, man city probably should have won it at the weekend but it tells you everything about the fact that liverpool can twice come from behind and put in such an impressive performance themselves to to get through it and they've played twice this season and, and drawn 2-2 both times and the good news is that the next episode coming up this weekend this saturday We'll definitely have a winner. So this cannot this can be two two, but we will then see a penalty shootout at the end of it. So we will finally get to see who has the edge out of these two sides and whether there are any flaws, whether there are anything to get into the psyche of these two teams for that run in for the Premier League title. And look, there's gotta be a possibility we see this as a Champions League final too. So um unbelievable um what we're seeing. The level, as I say, of, of that match we saw at the weekend was so high and I just loved it. Honestly, uh, I think it is matched by by one thing. It's it's Man City and Liverpool in 2019. It's the only <laughs> thing that can hold a candle to it. It's, it's yeah. these two teams three years ago when they duked it out and went 98 and 97 points respectively for the Premier League title. And obviously that year, Liverpool won the Champions League to make up for it, beating Tottenham 2-0 in the final. So these two teams are matched only by previous versions of themselves. Not a lot has changed, um, but they are as good as they have been 
uh, in 2019 and they, they're reaching those peak levels again. And it is a true joy to watch them, as you say. I don't know. I think those quadruple L Classicos where those two teams were the best, the best teams in Europe as well, I think probably how it holds a candle to it. Um, but it, you're, you're right. These things don't come around very often. And it's the first time I think we've seen it in the Premier League. Yeah, I'm more talking about Premier League. Yeah. But it, it does it does feel reminiscent of that. The two best teams in the world, two of the best managers in the world going head to head and just continually providing us with incredible entertainment. What it may be, not lacks, but maybe it doesn't have the, those Arsenal United rivalries that even those, you know, Classicos had as a, is the kind of spite, right? It, it, it actually, the amount of respect between the two teams. And look, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just, it, it, it's just a different kind of attitude in that, they both know how good each other are and there's plenty of respect between them. And in, in some ways, it kind of yeah, elevates it to a, wow, this is very, very special in, in a different level. Now, some people love that blood and thunder and, and that's grand. Um, but this just felt like the two best teams in the world and they know it. But, yeah. and, and I think that's quite intriguing. I mean, I think the fans are starting to hate each other, but... Um... You know, Guardiola and Klopp hugged about four times during that game. So those two have clearly got way too much respect for each other to to be having anything like we used to see from Wenger and Ferguson. Yeah, I, I saw a, a tweet from Ryan Hunter of Stadio who said that he thought it was interesting that this doesn't feel like a rivalry because both teams wish the other was Man United. And uh, I did think that that was quite an amusing <laughs> anecdote for the whole thing. Uh, and with that, let's move on to your thing we love, Sam. Yeah, it's Porto's new record because in beating Vitoria de Guimaraes at the weekend, they set a new unbeaten record streak in Portugal's top tier. 57 games without a loss. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? And to make it even sweeter as well, the previous record of 56 was held by none other than their arch rivals, Benfica. The Benfica set that record in the 1970s, so it stood for like 50 years and Porto actually came within a whisker of toppling it back in 2012. They lost to Gilles Vicente at 55 games back in 2012. They were one shy of matching the record and two shy of beating it. They've regrouped, they've recalibrated, and a decade later, under Sergio Conceição, they have done it. 57 Primera Liga games unbeaten. Naturally, that means they're unbeaten for the entire season. Stretching back into last season, there are five games left in the Portuguese season. And Porto are looking at a potential invincible season. They're also looking at a potential double. They seem pretty much set for the title with a six-point gap between themselves and Sporting. So it could be a title win. It could be a double win. It could be an invincible season. So if you ask me, I'm looking at this from here until the end of the season. This is something you have to keep your eyes on. Good weekend for Porto as well, because uh, as those of you who listen to our Monday Ultras postbox will know, I called the league in the bag for them as well. So they've actually won the league. Um, so that was the seventh and final in the bag call of 2021-22. It goes to Porto. So you know, those fans must be going absolutely mad. They must be so excited about the fact that they've won the league. Um, mm. and, and yeah, the bag the bag <laughs> lives for now. We will, we will see if it lives at the end of the season. As we always say, there's no point having a bag with a hole in it. Um, but right, I'm going to take us on to our our final point, um, which is about the Zwei Bundesliga, the Bundesliga 2, as some of you may know it. Um, and I got this from Valentin on Twitter. Now, Valentin is a Borussia Mönchengladbach fan, and I can only assume that he's been watching the Zwei Bundesliga so much because he doesn't want to watch his own team play football, considering how bad they have been over the course of this season. But the shout out to Valentin for putting this to my attention. He said... You know, Jack, I think you like these kind of situations. I want to present to you the race for promotion in the Zwei Bundesliga. So first, 
Schalke, 53 points. Second, Bremen, 53 points. Third, St. Pauli with 52 points. Fourth, Darmstadt with 51 points. And fifth, Nuremberg with 49 points. Now, the first two go up automatically. And third place in the Zwei Bundesliga plays the team who come 16th in the Bundesliga uh, in a straight playoff for promotion, which is one of my favorite games on earth. This is absolutely ludicrous. It's a winner takes all. You know, one team stays up, one team goes down, um, which is always intriguing. Um, but Valentin says that the madness actually is the remaining fixtures in the last five match days. So Schalke first, Werder Bremen second, Sampaoli third, Darmstadt fourth, and Nuremberg in fifth. So this weekend, Darmstadt play Schalke and Werder Bremen play Nuremberg. Next weekend, Schalke play Werder Bremen and Sampaoli play Darmstadt. The weekend after, Sampaoli play Nuremberg. The weekend after that, Schalke play Sampaoli. And the final weekend of the season, Nuremberg play Schalke. So in these games, there is seven, seven games left where the top five are playing each other with this all to play for. Um, and those three spots and, and only kind of four points between uh, first and fifth. It really is incredibly exciting, incredibly tight. Um, so it's going to be one to keep an eye on that promotion race in the Bundesliga too. And, and, and obviously looking at who comes down as well is going to be intriguing. Her to Berlin uh, with a battering of Union at the weekend. Now it deep in the mire in those relegation places. So who goes down and who comes up in Germany? A couple of sleeping giants in there as well in, in Schalke and Werder Bremen in particular. Um, and if San Pauli were to come up ahead of uh, ahead of Hamburg, that would be a, a first as well. In, in at least in recent times, to see them ahead of their cross city rivals, one that you could imagine would go down absolutely terribly in the blue half <laughs> of Hamburg. Um, right. With that, we will wrap up things we love. After the break, we're going to be joined by Alex Stewart of TIFO and The Athletic to talk about teams that we can't wait to see what happens for next season. Welcome back to the Ranks FC podcast, where we're delighted to announce that we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Alex Stewart of TIFO and The Athletic. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Ah, thanks very much for having me. Very excited. Yes. Yeah, it's very exciting. This is a, a great combination and one that people have been clamoring for. So I'm, uh, I'm excited. I know Sam's been incredibly excited. So I'm going to throw it to him. He's going to tee this up and we'll get rolling. Yeah, we get constant requests uh, for a TIFO ranks crossover and we finally acquiesced. But uh, what really led us to do it was uh, a couple of weeks ago, we put the feelers out for some potential topics that listeners would be quite interested in hearing about. And one of the really good requests we had, one that I really, really liked, was uh, talking about some clubs that have put some special things in place ahead of what could be a genuinely excellent following season. So we're getting towards the end of this season, of course, but we're already looking ahead to next season. And I've picked out three clubs that I think have put the building blocks in place for a really impressive 2022-23. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing their praises. And then I'm going to ask Alex to expand on that and look at those next steps and what they need to put in place over the course of the summer in order to make sure that they do, in fact, take advantage of the progress they've made and make it a very special 2022-23. Excelente. And then we'll throw it to Dean and see if they have any any kind of signs of actually doing any of those things. So that's good. Um, right then, <laughs> let's get rolling. Okay, so I've picked three clubs and we'll start at number three and I chose Roma. Now, I'm not going to lie, had some doubts about Jose Mourinho and Roma, probably starting back in last March when they announced him and all the way through to maybe a couple of months ago, but I feel pretty comfortable now saying that they're in a good place and they're in a, in a place where they can probably probably make a leap next season. So 
The context of that is they are 11 unbeaten in Serie A, which is pretty impressive. They're in fifth place. They are actually on the exact same points tally this season as they were at this stage last season. And that means that some people at face value have suggested that Roma haven't necessarily gone anywhere. And then you add in the fact that they spent 80 million euros plus last summer and they've appointed Jose Mourinho on the second highest wage packet for a manager in Italy. And actually some people have said, well, look, you've spent all this money and you've kind of gone nowhere. But I think that's too simplistic an argument. And I think there's more to take into consideration. I'd like to give a big shout out to John Solano from Roma Press, who did some initial digging here. And we've got some numbers to tell us that actually Roma are on the right track. Weirdly, they're the only team in the top half of Serie A who are underperforming their expected goals tally. Everybody else is overperforming it. That's pretty common for top teams. They've got top finishes. A team like Napoli are about 10 ahead of their XG, but Roma, their XG is 55 and they've scored just 53. So that basically means two things. One, they're missing too many chances. And I think we can essentially put that down to Tammy Abraham hitting the post and the bar for his first two months in a Roma shirt incessantly rather than the back of the net. Fortunately, he's found his feet at this point. But also it means that they're consistently creating really good goal-scoring chances. Only Inter Milan in Serie A are creating more plentiful and better chances to score goals. So the old adage about Mourinho being super defensive doesn't necessarily fly because his Roma team are creating the chances. Then you add in the fact that they've conceded 12 fewer goals at this stage last season than they had last season under Paolo Fonseca. That was a real problem for them. They scored a lot, but they conceded a lot and they've conceded 12 fewer. Rui Patricio is in with a shout of the Golden Glove or the Italy's equivalent. So the numbers are telling us that Mourinho's Roma are much improved in defence. They're close to league leading in terms of chance creation and goal scoring threat. And a little correction, maybe just a natural correction in terms of XG, could quite conceivably see them shift up the gears and shoot upwards maybe at the end of this season, but most importantly, probably next season as well. Hmm. It's um, it's an intriguing one, isn't it? There's also the kind of this element of getting to grips with a new manager. And I would say that the standard, maybe not at the very top of Serie A, but definitely in, in the kind of teams in around those European places has jumped from where it was last year. It feels like, you know, Fiorentina are back in the mix, having been you know, relegation candidates over the last sort of three, four years. Um, they're back in that conversation. I think that Lazio are, are there or thereabouts and have been, you know, for that amount of time. It's Atalanta who have kind of slid down the table and, and that's to do with an injury crisis as much as anything else. So intriguing to see this Roma side kind of in that mix and in that conversation, probably still for fourth, you'd say, at, at this point and a Champions League spot. Um, Alex, how do you see this Roma side? Um, yeah, I think they're. I think they're definitely interesting. I mean, the the thing with the Roma team uh, that is, I think, most exciting is this core of younger Italian or sort of mid aged Italian uh, players like Zanolo Pellegrini. Obviously, Spinazzola with the horrible uh, injury, but he will be coming back at some point. Hopefully. Uh, the same sort of player that he was before. Abraham has really surged into form. There was an excellent article uh, on The Analyst um, recently, I think a couple of days back, on on how Abraham is scoring, but also crucially how he contributes to this really quite pulsating counter-attacking style that Roma are developing. Um, I think that's one of the interesting things about this team is that while uh, Serie A tends to have this sort of 
clever patterned style of build up among the better teams and obviously you know with Napoli when uh, Sarri was there that was particularly a thing Inter had it under Conte and they've continued under Inzaghi to have this Roma kind of bucks that trend uh, and it's it's playing a little bit more like say a Torino for example you know hit teams on the break look to progress the ball really rapidly through the lines that feeds in superbly to what Abraham is good at um, so I think if, if they if they look to build upon that and build upon that transitional system, maybe get like a, a better progressive six or have that seems to be the area of the pitch where where they have the most issues. So the, the, this defensive system with two or three centre backs, uh, Mourinho has recently gone back to a back three, but he was using a back four on and off. They need better ball progression from there and they need to fix whether Brian Cristan is a centre-back or a defensive midfielder because that's where they're getting a lot of their progression from. He's not great at covering the horizontal spaces and really shielding that back line. So, and he also has a tendency to drop into spaces where actually if he receives the ball, it's not really beating a line of the press. It's not really advancing a progression too much. So I think if they sort those things out, uh, you know, they've gone defensively exactly as Sam said they're more solid than they were under Fonseca and that's obviously a great place to start um but I think that they have lost some of their progressive ability from the back by doing that they need a, a left-sided center back who can really pass the ball someone like uh, Sansini from Feyenoord maybe who's also got that kind of aggressive quality that I really like uh and probably just one or two bits of greater quality it's it's interesting that Patricio has conceded so few goals or kept so many clean sheets. He's actually underperforming his post-shot expected goals, which is an interesting one. So maybe that's a, a position that they would actually look to upgrade, even though uh, Patricio has been part of a good defensive performance overall. Maybe Keeper is somewhere to upgrade as well. Yeah, it's, it's intriguing, isn't it? Obviously, they brought in Sergio Oliveira in, in January, and that seemed to kind of not necessarily facilitate, but definitely help with that shift in, in formation because it gives them that energy in the middle. And look, we saw them in that game against Roma and, and against Lazio and and that Oliveira-Cristante pivot felt very sensible. It is probably how I'd phrase it. Yeah. It felt like the kind of thing for a grown-up game. And Mourinho likes his grown-ups <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> he does indeed. He, he, yes, grown-ups with a sprinkling of, of of quicker people ahead of them. And, and Oliveira... When obviously when Porto went on that great Champions League run last season, watching Oliveira was that was the sort of performance that I really like seeing. You know, someone who's very measured, very intelligent, who can play line breaking passes, but always seems to be in in the right spot. And he felt very much like a Mourinho sort of early two thousands era style player. So that's a natural acquisition. I think they still they still need to figure out. In terms of that system, you know, sometimes that that central screening midfielder is very deep and, and single, and it's someone like Veratu who's doing it. Other times they'll be playing a pivot. It feels like there's a little bit of a a disconnect in terms of how they create their deep build-up from a from a system point of view. They need to really get that nailed. And whether that's something that Mourinho is is trying to adapt on a game-by-game basis to to sort of you know work around issues that opposition teams present him or whether it's because a combination of selection problems and injuries and him not being entirely sure what his best team is means that he's chopping and changing a little bit but that that's an area that I would look to to focus on 
Yeah, fair. I mean, Dean, do we know anything about what, what Roma's kind of movements in the market look like at this point? There's, you know, some obvious things that jump out in that Henrik Mkhitaryan is having a fantastic second half of this season, but he's also 33 years old. And and there's that kind of element of, yes, Zaniolo is there. There's been links to Juventus and Zaniolo. There's been links elsewhere as well. If Mourinho doesn't see him as the kind of key crucial cog in, in where he's going, then you'd imagine that Zaniolo might look to move onwards, um, despite the fact that you know, he's a wonderful footballer. He might just not quite fit this system. And I suppose it leaves Roma in a, in a slightly strange place as they look to kick forward. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think that they've been helped recently by the upturn of getting results because there was there was one period in which it looked like they might not even finish in the top... Well, they probably might finish in the top seven, but only just about. And the fact that they've kicked on a little bit since then and looks like they're going to finish in a European uh, spot means that they are more confident that their transfer plans can be, well... They can define the way that this team changes. And like you say, those those little nuggets around the core of the team can start to change. I don't honestly think they'll make big changes in the summer. I think that it's extremely important that they have the stability of Mourinho actually staying. Like, you know, that I didn't think he'd even get through this season. Um, I don't think a lot of the coaches in Italy like him. I think I think the last two games they played, didn't Bodo Glimt coach moaned about him. Salernitana's coach has moaned about him. Like nobody likes the guy, but everyone inside Roma does seem to like him. And I think that that's going to be the core value for which they're going to look to um, call upon people to to join this team. Now you've got to be a certain character to survive under a Mourinho regime. And that's going to be fundamental in the recruitment for this year. Like they're not going to be looking like for players that are going to stay at Roma for the next four or five years. They're looking for players over the next one or two years that can actually push them into that top four because it's wide open. And, you know, there was, they probably should have been in there this season. Let's be honest. Like it's been wide open and Roma will feel, they still might. I think it's unlikely at this point. Um, and there's probably been a bit of a missed opportunity. So the the main plan is that Mourinho can identify, along with the recruitment staff, two or three players that go into that starting lineup and next season put a measurable um, effort into qualifying for the Champions League. Yeah, I mean, look, considering how open the title race has been, you, you wouldn't suggest that, you know, obviously teams are going to improve over the next couple of years and you'd imagine that the Juventus are going to grow back towards that kind of title winning attitude at the very least. But you, you don't think that, you know, considering where Roma have been, I think if 2022, they're the top form team in the league, um, if they keep that up. There's no reason they can't be in that conversation. If they're going to be in the top four conversation, it feels like you're in the title conversation at the moment in Serie A, which is quite an interesting kind of yeah, in, in itself. Um, but I suppose, Sam, it's probably time to, to shift things onwards. Yeah, sounds good to me, Dean. Two or three players in the return of Spinazzola. Uh, that could be the thing that pushes Roma on. But yeah, we'll move to number two. And this is where we'll talk about Arsenal. The timing of this one might jar a little bit because it's been a tough week for Arsenal, hasn't it? Consecutive losses to Palace and to Brighton has essentially kind of squandered that advantage they had in the top four race with Tottenham. Obviously, they're not out of it, but I think now they know that they're in a, a bit of a dogfight. When you're in one of these dogfights, you want your best and most experienced players. They're missing three of them. Tierney is out for the season, which is a big blow. Haven't seen Tomoyasu since about February. And Thomas Partey is off and on again in terms of injuries. And he picked one up quite recently. That said, and I have to say, like Arsenal fans seem pretty down about what's happened recently. And I understand it, but like you're still well in this. And you're still so much further forward 
than you were at the start of the season. You start where you were in the summer and particularly where you were after three games of this season when you were rock bottom of the Premier League and you went into the international break with a ridiculous goal difference in 20th place. Testament here to Arteta and to Arsenal for the progress that they have made over the course of the season and the faith that they've shown in their manager has paid off big time. There's a couple of things that we can all pick out that we really like. First of all, they play some really good stuff. There's a really obvious template and identity to this team, which had been lacking, I think, in previous managers or essentially towards the end of the Wenger era and then in the, the middle period. Um, the, res the results have improved massively off the back of that after having some stability in terms of playing style, the recruitment, the talent ID, that's all got lots better. Arteta's coaching of these young players looks to be very good. He and his staff have improved pretty much every single one of these young players that they've got their hands on. And they've all improved over the course of the season as Arsenal have got better and better. They've put together a series of win streaks. They've improved the culture of the squad. And they've done all this despite having to sell Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in the summer due to a seeming, well, tactical clash with Arteta. He didn't fit the system and also didn't seem like he fit the squad culture and the personality fit either. So he's gone and, you know, de facto your best striker. Not easy to lose that player in the middle of the, in the, middle of the season, but Arsenal only got better off the back of it. And whether they finish fourth or fifth this season, they are on a positive track. And what they're doing feels sustainable. And remember, they finished eighth last season. So even be in this Champions League conversation is an achievement in a short space of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know what you mean about it feeling like it's a it's a strange time to do it, but it, it does, I think it, you look at the overarching picture and things are probably more rosy for Arsenal than they have seen in, in quite some time, Alex. Completely agree. <clears throat> I think one of the things that Sam's rightly highlighted there is, is the talent acquisition because certainly over at TIFO, uh, <laughs> we ate our words massively on Ramsdale. Um, I think Tommy Asu felt like a weird signing at the time because Spurs were in for him and, you know, he was coming from Bologna and people didn't really know much about him. And he's exactly like Sam said, has slotted into this system. When I'm watching teams play, one of the things that I really like from a tactical perspective is knowing roughly what's going to happen because there are repeated patterns and obviously, repeated patterns aren't necessarily good because teams can can figure them out. But if you execute them with speed and technical ability and you have players that can break that slightly and do something jazzy like Smith Rowe can with his carrying or Saka can, uh, then it works really well. And, and Arsenal have these clearly defined patterns and Tomiyasu is crucial to that. Um, I think that for for them, really, they they need to they need to kind of take a deep breath and continue in this mold. I think as, as Sam rightly highlighted that the faith that was kept with Arteta when a lot of that fan base was, was being heavily critical and, and, you know, no disrespect to Arsenal fans, but they are quite <laughs> vociferous when it comes to certain things. Um, but Arsenal stuck with them and, and, and with him, sorry. And that was the right thing to do. They need to continue to target the same sorts of players. Someone like Lukonga is clearly going to grow into a good Premier League quality midfielder. I still think that's the area that they probably need to strengthen most. The the drop-off in quality between, say, Partey and, and Lakonga and and people like El Nenny coming in. El Nenny is solid and can run around and press and win a few tackles. But I think there are young and interesting midfielders out there uh, who maybe can fit this mold. I think the other thing... Oh, Actually, I've written some names down because this is what I like doing. Usman <laughs> Diakate at St. Gallen. Yes. 
Uh, he's good. Uh, and someone that we've talked about before at TIFO, um, Azul Matasiwa, who's now at Reims, um, I probably pronounced that wrong, uh, was at Groningen, um, a team that produces good players. These are the sorts of guys, uh, I think, if they want a kind of busy, pressing, win the ball, scurry about, but also capable of, of you know, passing between the lines effectively, that's good. I would also look at someone like uh, uh, Orkan uh, Coco. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong as well, uh, the Feyenoord midfielder. These are the kind of people who fit into their profile. They're sort of, you know, between 21 and 23 years old. They're hardworking, intelligent, progressive defensive midfielders. That that feels to be the area where, you know, if Arsenal could go out and buy Basuma or Ndidi, they would do, but they can't. Um, and so the, these are the sorts of things where I think that, that it fits their talent ID profile. It fits the kind of scouting that they're currently doing really successfully. Do they need a striker? Yes, probably. I think there's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's do, yeah. Yes for me as well. I mean, it is. Although, again, this the the way that Lacazette is playing, creating space, holding the ball up. You know, Arsenal are a young team, and they don't have a great amount of leadership. They don't have experienced players, and and we can see why Ramsdale is like trying to step up and and be a leader in that regard. And you know, you have someone like Gabriel who will throw himself around, but doesn't necessarily have the on field voice although he does have the presence. Lacazette does bring that a little bit. Um, I would be wary of of maybe bringing in a young, exciting striker and not also finding another player that can come into that team and provide a bit more leadership because I think Lacazette does do that and I think that's the trade-off. Yes, if they can go out and sign Alexander Isak, they should do, obviously, but also... I always worry about teams that don't have a kind of a presence, a leadership, somebody who's a bit of a bastard um, and will, will kind of... <laughs> We've got Xhaka. You know, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but Xhaka is not... Like, he's, he's going to be eased out. You know, that there's the, the way that they're building that midfield, you know, that there's a vibrancy and a, and a pace required for that. And he doesn't have that. Like, I, I get Xhaka does do certain things, but... Uh, it's it's not enough for me. And someone like Ben White, you know, very elegant player. Benjamin White, sorry, I believe he wants to be called. Very elegant player, but he's again, he's not he's not a leader quite in the way that you want them to be. This is a problem with with my own team. I feel Southampton, same thing. Lots of nice players, and and people will will do the odd tactical foul and stuff. But you need somebody who's got a bit of bite to them and a bit of charisma and a bit of of authority. Uh, I think that's that's something that Arsenal are still lacking a little bit. The flip side to that is they're a vibrant, young, exciting team. People, even neutrals, I think, like people like Saka. They like people like Smith-Rowe. Er- Erdegaard is capable of producing moments of absolute beauty. And there's a, there's a real energy around that side. So I think mostly it's just keep doing what you're doing and maybe add one or two bits quite carefully. But I think yeah. that's what they'll do anyway. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Dean, we kind of know that Arsenal have been sniffing around nines forever um, without necessarily committing to picking one up. And, you know, we, we've seen what's happened in the wake of Kieran Tierney's injury as well. Um, and look, if, if Nuno Tavares is not going to be considered as, 
you know, a sensible option, even if it is a long-term one. But if, you know, they need something in the short term there, they might need to be, you know, picking up a left back as well. If they're not going to, if they're going to feel that, that, that KT3 is not going to be replaced by Nuno Tavares, yeah. then, you know, with his injury record, it is absolutely madness to, to not look at trying to fill that issue. There's also the fact, fact that Saliba and Guendouzi, perhaps less so, are out on loan at Marseille um, and, and both doing well. In fact, I think they're the two players who've, played the most minutes for Marseille across the course of this season. They're second in Liga. Now, if Guendouzi feels a little bit like Arsenal's past, there's still, I think, a hope that Saliba might be the future. I'm not sure. I mean, there's been very, very mixed reviews about Saliba ever since the moment they signed him and whether he's ever even going to get an opportunity in this Arsenal team or whether he was just signed as somebody that might have potential to be sold on and actually never really figure in this team. So we'll have to see. I mean, hopefully he gets an opportunity in pre-season. But I think the... The thing that nobody can doubt is that this team needs an underbelly because that you know uh, their strongest eleven is great, and on their day they're as good as anybody in this league almost. But you take out two players and they just collapse and they fall apart. Particularly like we've seen recently with Shaka, as soon as he's moved out to left back, like he can try and do a job to cover for Kieran Tierney, can't do it as well. And also Shaka's gone missing from the middle at a time when Party's also missing. And that combination had been so important to Arsenal actually turning a corner and becoming good. So that was important. And that's why they will sign another midfielder. They will sign another left back. I think they'll sign another centre back too. They've been linked with Concer from Aston Villa. I don't believe that there's a lot in that link, to be honest with you. But um, I think they'll try and sign someone just to add some depth. And then it's the attacking positions that they're most looking at. Calvert-Lewin and Isak are the two guys that get spoken about all the time. But it's interesting that the the kind of profile of forward play that's actually been linked more recently is different. It's Richarlison, it's Wilfred Zaha, and it's Eden Hazard. They're the three players most recently linked to Arsenal. Now, I think we completely forget Eden Hazard. Like, I don't think that's a good fit for either club. I don't think Eden Hazard's looking to join Arsenal right now, and I don't think Arsenal and Arteta should be looking to get Eden Hazard in at this moment, considering what we've seen of him. And I think he needs more of an emotional pull from his next club as well and needs somebody to let him just be, you know, the poster boy, if you like, and just feel love, feel love for the game again. But Richarlison and Zaha are interested and Zaha's obviously done the, he's done the circuit many times in terms of being linked with Arsenal. They're still, they are still interested not sure it's wise. I mean, they've got so many players capable of that coming through the academy and getting their opportunities now. And Richarlison is actually a really interesting one because he's going to leave Everton this summer um, and Arsenal have been offered him and they are considering it and what they would do with him if he was to come in. Um, interesting, of course, that Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin both link with Arsenal at the moment. I, I'm not sure they will sign both, but... Um, I think they'll get one of them. I really do. I think one of those players will end up joining Arsenal in the summer. And it just depends which way they're going to go in terms of how Arteta sees this team shaping out. Completely understand the Lacazette stuff. I mean, what he's done this season for Arsenal, I think has been missed by quite a lot of people because he hasn't been scoring that many goals. But his layoffs, his hold-up play, he's got quite a few assists, actually, particularly in the last few months. Um, He's on pens. He's a captain a lot of the time when um, they need him. He is a leader and they don't have many leaders, like you say. So I think he'll get a new contract, Lacazette, and I think he'll still be there. But he's not the answer going forward. So they do have to find a new a new centre forward. 
See, here's the problem, and it's the great contradiction, and no one can help it, but Arsenal have a model, and it's to buy players in a certain age bracket who are uh, ahead of their peak and can then mature into a better player because ultimately they can't they can't really compete for those top tier players. But in buying those players, you are naturally targeting an age bracket of somewhere between like 19 and, and 23, which doesn't often generate a player who can go out on the pitch and be that leadership presence. So they're caught, they're sort of trapped in a vortex there where they have a model and it's serving them really well. To take the next step, they may need to break the model, but then they'd be kind of betraying what they what has got them to this point so far. So it's a really difficult balance. And I'm pretty convinced that Alexander Isak would be an amazing tactical fit for Arteta. And he looks to me like what Arteta wants from his centre forward. If Arteta has essentially chosen Lacazette over Aubameyang, that tells you something. And that makes Isak a much better fit than Dominic Calvert-Lewin. So it's a bit of a weird one. And I'm desperate to see what they actually do here because it will tell us how Arteta genuinely feels about his centre-forward profile. But as we've talked about a few times, like it is genuinely pretty difficult to figure out where they should go with that one. Another one we talked about, of course, with Aaron Moniz was, was Jonathan David as a profile. Feels like it would, really, it would really suit Arteta if Lacazette is what he wants. But we have to see. And they have to negotiate the upgrade also, of the consider, forward well, line. Well, considering without, that Lille sold yeah. Ossiemen for, what, 80 million? Where, uh, well, I, don't, I, I imagine that Arsenal, <laughs> Arsenal are probably not going to be getting involved with a bidding war for Jonathan David. Yeah, but, but let's not forget, they've got Nicolas Pepe in a situation like this, and that obviously hasn't worked out. But I'm wondering, like, well, are they going to try and move him on? The, the big problem you've got with Pepe is you're never seeing that money again. Like, was it £72 million in the end for Pepe? Like, they, they paid double what he was worth. Um and it just hasn't worked out for him at all. It's a shame because he's obviously still a very talented and exciting player. We've seen flashes of it this season at Arsenal, but if they're being linked with some of these attacking players, I'm also wondering whether it means that they're thinking, okay, maybe we just eat a few million here and reinvest it in somewhere else. Possibly. Mm, very interesting. Very interesting. It's going to be a big summer for Arsenal, that much is for sure. Um, Sam, which leads us quite nicely onto our number one, I think. Yeah, number one, I think, has to be Barcelona. I mean, what a ride it's been for them this season. Quite unbelievable. Remember, they started this summer 1.3 billion euros in debt. They lost Lionel Messi. They had to loan Antoine Griezmann out to Atletico Madrid near the deadline. And then Luke de Jong came in, who was the least Barcelona player in history. So tumultuous summer doesn't even really cover it. Then you got the performances and the results in the early stage of the season. They were really poor under Ronald Koeman. They, they, didn't, they didn't look like a proper team at all. Uh, let, forget the fact that they didn't really look like a Barcelona team. They just didn't look like a team. And he was replaced by Xavi on November 6th. And from that point, it has basically been amazing. Um, from November 6th, Barcelona have played 18 games in La Liga. They've won 13, drawn four and lost one. So that's 43 points. And the only team better during that period is Real Madrid with 45 points. But Madrid have played one more game than Barcelona during that span. This is a 2.4 points per game average, which over a full season is a roughly 90 to 91 point season. That is where Barcelona are right now. It's an extremely healthy average. And suddenly it looks like an extremely healthy team. Obviously, still concerns over the debts, still concerns over the loans what that means for the summer. But they keep putting their hat in the ring for the biggest players in the world. They keep trying to negotiate with Erling Haaland and Robert Lewandowski. And they've recovered from this period of darkness ridiculously quickly. It really is quite amazing. When you consider what some fans have to go through, decades of hurt and sorrow, for Barcelona to, to snap out of it within about four months is, is genuinely remarkable. 
then you come to the pitch stuff. Like they play some of the best football in the world right now. The midfield is singing. They consistently score three or, or four goals a game. All of the forwards are on song. There's a frightening speed and timing and movement and clinical nature and precision to this team. I guess actually what, what Xavi's best achievement is, is the defence has also stepped up recently as well. I mean, if you've got Eric Garcia playing really well three weeks in a row, you know that you're onto something and you know that you've got a ta- tactical mastermind at your hands. I mean, I know that he's very much helped by Araujo, but PK's looking better. Garcia's looking better. The defence is stepping up and it, it kind of all feels like it's all coming up Xavi right now. And Barca fans are some of the most excited in the world right now. And, and you can really easily see why, right? Yeah, it's a it's an easy one to to get on board with. Barcelona are fun again. They and and that turnaround, Alex. That you know the speed of that, as Sam says, is it, it, something to behold. It does mean that you're looking at this already. And look, I think most people have them as favourites for the Europa League. They're probably going to come second in La Liga. If you'd offered these things to Barcelona fans in you know say December, I think they would have bitten your hand off for them. And and that's you know making it even more exciting for the seasons to come. Yeah, they would have snapped your arm off above the elbow. Um, I think <laughs> that, that it's there's always a there's always a danger, isn't there, when a club legend returns, particularly one whose management experience to date had been uh, limited uh, and in a league of perhaps not the greatest quality. Although people who watched Al Sad said there was some quite exciting stuff happening there. Um, but yes, this is somebody in Javi who clearly understands the fabric of the club as he would do, but is obviously really good at coaching and really good at getting, like Sam says, getting the best out of players who, I mean, Garcia looked like a bin fire under Kerman. Um, it was a laughable decision to continue to play him, but they're stepping up. I think I think really Barca still, and, and I, I get what Sam's saying about on pitch performances and there you know there are still some things that are bad off the pitch but I, if i'm barca my focus is off the pitch now like i'm i'm looking at xavi i'm looking at the squad particularly with some of the midfielders coming through obviously we know that pedri is an insane talent um gavi as well and nico gonzalez uh frankie de Jong is still doing the you know decent stuff and, and can probably drop back into that six role at some juncture there's a couple of other areas where you'd look you know a striker probably i think Lewandowski actually would be a good move for them if they can afford it because um he's still very very good but he also does provide again some of this leadership and experience to what is otherwise quite a young attacking unit um but they have to concentrate on the business stuff because that the threat of those issues bubbling away under the surface, the loss of key personnel behind the scenes, and uh, in, in you know sort of the marketing area, that kind of stuff, the business side of things, those debts are still there. The Spanish league system is you know look at the hoops they had to jump through to to register Ferran Torres, who's been a good signing as well. Um, that stuff won't go away and it will take them a season for their revenues to catch up to the point where their cap starts to increase. So I think, yes, get excited about the team, get excited about the players. Barcelona in a footballing trajectory, very much back on song, but to, to allow that excitement and the you know, kind of the next great La Masia generation potentially coming through. I know Pedri was bought in, but same sort of thing. Um, to let that distract you from the financial stuff, I think would be quite perilous. 
Um, and I think that there need to be some hard heads behind the scenes going, let's not get carried away by how good our midfield is when we still owe lots of people lots of money. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the, the understatement <laughs> of the century in, 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 many, in many ways, that one, Alex. Uh, I mean, Dean, these financials are obviously there um it hasn't seemed to stop barcelona from poking their head about about the parapet about every single big name signing on earth um by all accounts um how how much this Lewandowski stuff is is worth believing yeah i think it's worth believing because i think that they have this is a position they realize they have to sort for next season if they're going to really truly make this jump i mean if you're a Man United fan and for the last seven or so years you've been watching your team in decline, as they say, it's, you know, struggle to come to terms with the end of an era and then see Barcelona go through a similar thing with Messi and fix it in three months, you are <laughs> devastated because you're like, what? How is that possible? We were told this is impossible and they've done it. Um, they haven't even got any money. So, you know, whether it's through bank loans, whether it's through personal investment, you know, Barcelona are making things happen and they're, they're just dealing with it as they go along and, you know, they have been wise too in terms of free transfers and stuff and looking for people that are out of contracts and they're still doing that. If you look at the situation with Andreas Christensen at, at Chelsea, um, he's going to be a Barcelona player next season and they're trying the same thing with Rudiger and Aspilicueta. They're not going to end up with all three, but the, you know the fact that they they saw an opportunity there and were like Chelsea got a good defence and we could actually sign three of them. Let's try and do it. Like why not? They're trying <laughs> to exploit certain markets. And Lewandowski is at a juncture whereby, for the first time, it looks like he is going to leave Germany. Looks like he's going to go and test himself somewhere else. And why not that place be Barcelona? Like he's going to be interested in that. Of course he is. I'm sure Erling Haaland is too to some extent. Like I don't I, I don't think they'll win the race to sign Haaland, but like. I think that he's very tempted by it if they could do it. Interesting too, in the last week, um, João Felix has been linked to Barcelona. Rafinha has been linked to Barcelona. Um, So that gives you an idea of the fact that maybe there is money going to be available because those guys do not come cheap. And then, of course, there's situations like Usman Dembele to sort out as well. Like, will he sign a contract? Will he leave? Um, That just seems to change every week. So there's a lot still to be done. But ultimately, like Barcelona's turnaround has just been insane. There is quite a lot of attacking players here, Sam. And and, and I I was thinking about this. I mean, if you're going to pick up these players, and look, obviously, they're going to be linked to far more players than they're actually going to pick up, right? That's the the ultimate line with with every team in every summer. Um, But you look at someone like Memphis who was kind of brought in as the poster boy, right? Of this kind of new generation, of this new era of that Barcelona. That was the old era, mate. That was, that was four or five months ago. And it, it, felt, <laughs> it felt like, it feels like Memphis is, I know he's been injured and I know there's been, you know, off-field issues, but it feels like Memphis is out in the cold at the moment and obviously just about returning to the side and all of these things, but he's very much not part of this first choice selection. And that's just incredibly intriguing considering where they are. Yeah, I mean, when Dean was talking there through Lewandowski, through Rafinha and all the others, I'm just looking at this 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 list of attackers and obviously Dembele has come back in, has been massively important for them recently. Aubameyang has caught fire early and continued. Ferran Torres, I think he was sold a dream as Barcelona's number nine, which you know encouraged him to join Barcelona. It doesn't seem like that dream is going to be fulfilled, but he's still got a spot in the team and he's playing well. Then you've got Ansu Fati, then you've got Memphis Depay. Surely at this point, Adama Traore's loan will not be made permanent because the mighty Martin Brathwaite is also still around and you can't keep him down for very long. You, so You say that, Sam, but you know there's still this kind of minor issue of, of what Trincao is worth to Barcelona and Wolves. And if Wolves want to make that true. permanent, there's, there, there, there's kind of 
precedent for those kind of deals being sent both ways in order to make the books look nice. We've seen it with yeah, Arthur true. and Pjanic, um, haven't we? That is true. That is true. Um, but we've, we, we're currently on, what's that? That's seven names. If you add Lewandowski, it becomes eight. I know a team like Barcelona need a lot of depth, but like it's getting a bit, it's getting a bit ridiculous at points here. So they need to figure out exactly what that identity is. I mean, again, we're so, we're so early into Xavi's reign that we don't really know exactly what he sees from certain players. Like, what is his ideal striker in this Barcelona team? We don't know and we can't possibly say. Just because Aubameyang has been a success early doors, I mean, clearly they just jumped on that because it was a January opportunity and they needed a shot in the arm. He's been brilliant and he's signed until 2025. I'm not trying to deny that, but we don't know what Xavi sees for this forward line. He's kind of, he's kind of rolled with what he's been dealt so far. A couple of emergency actions in, Jan- uh, actions in January have helped, but still we're, we're waiting to see. And if he, if he wants Lewandowski, and the last report I read was he sat down with him and he's told him he wants him. Very different player to Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Different again to Ferran Torres. They all have very obvious different strengths. What is his vision for this forward line? I don't know. And of course, the summer's going to tell us about that. And why does he want Frank Kessie? Like, why do Barcelona want Frank Kessie when they have six midfielders that are all awesome and... He's good, but if they see him as a, as a, as a Busquets replacement, I'd, I'd suggest maybe they've got it slightly wrong. Um, if they see him as a, as a number eight and they want to drop Frankie back in, fine. But again, lots and lots of questions here. Lots to be excited about, but so much over the course of the summer, just like with Arsenal, where you're just wondering what shape it takes. It will just, it reveals so much. Well, maybe it's about Barcelona being able to shift dynamics, right? Like this, this is kind of an element that maybe is underappreciated that, you know, the best teams in the world can can change their shapes, can change the the way they play, can change. Yes, obviously they have set dynamics and, and as Alex mentioned, you know, set patterns that, that work in that direction. But if Barcelona can shift from a side that can, you know, play beautiful, you know, keep the ball football and, and play rondos in the opposition half as we've seen them do a couple of times this year to a team that you know can push into a really really aggressive pressing team who who are able to have the likes of Kessier in there and and, and Aubameyang and, and those players who are looking at you know bringing a different kind of aspect to what that is it gives Barcelona massive options in terms of changing up games we saw them struggle in Frankfurt this week in the Europa League with a team that just were you know, far, far more aggressive than they were. And they really did struggle, especially first half against Frankfurt. They just couldn't cope with it. And I imagine Xavi's seen that and gone, right, okay, I need to have the tools at my disposal to be able to combat games like this as much as I want the tools at my disposal to play the way that I want to play when we're dominating games. Yeah, needs a few players that can beat Levante comfortably as well. Barcelona always struggle against them. Goodness me. I called Luke de Jong the most un-Barcelona signing ever, but he's actually a cult hero at the same time. Yeah, they absolutely needed him. That's the lot. Right. Well, I think that's the end of the list, Sam. Is there any honourable mentions you wanted before we uh, before we come to it? None from me, but I assume there's some from you. Well, I, obviously, it wouldn't be an episode if I didn't have any honourable mentions. Um, I just want to shout <laughs> out Leipzig because we've seen a similar style turnaround from Leipzig under Tedesco, not quite to the same extent, but you know, as we have seen from Xavi under Barcelona, and and I've been really intrigued by them. They feel like comfortably the second best side in Germany at the moment and in the way that they're playing. And, you know, maybe if Bayern are having this mini crisis that people are talking about, that there could be not necessarily a changing of the guard, but at least a title race in the Bundesliga next season. So I'm intrigued by Leipzig. The reason I wouldn't put Leipzig in this list is because they're only ever a key player sail away from trying and starting again. 
And you just never really know, do you, what the summer is going to hold for a team like Leipzig. Uh, last summer was was particularly debilitating and it's taken them a little while to get over that, losing basically the the, the first choice centre-back combo and the midfield general and Sabitzer. So I never really, I'm never really sure where I stand with Leipzig. I don't know what their plans are, but I don't think that Barcelona or Arsenal or Roma are going to lose any of their key players. So those three teams, for me, feel like they're, they're in the ideal position to truly push on and build on their strength. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much all for this section. And first and foremost, I'll just thank Alex for his time and contributions. It's been really, really wonderful having you on the pod, Alex. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It's been it's been great fun. Absolutely. Right after the break, we've got Medal of the Week in the gibberish rankings. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Ranks FC. And first and foremost, got to say a massive thank you to Alex Stewart of TIFO and the Athletic for his, well, wonderful contributions there. Sam, you two, you two working off each other there. It was like a prime Kevin Phillips, Niall Quinn kind of thing going on. <laughs> I prefer a more I prefer a more recent comparison. Thank you. We're not that old. Yeah, it's classic, well, though, isn't it? It's you classic. are both. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's vintage. It was it was glorious. It reminds me of the glory days of podcasting. There you go. Uh, right, Dean. Welcome back. It's time for everyone's favorite time of the week. It's time for melon of the week. This week's melon of the week is. Jefferson Soteldo of Tigres. Yes, this is obviously not somebody that was on my radar at all. I don't watch Liga MX. Of course I don't. But a man known only as Drophead in our mentions did have him on his radar. Uh, so thank you for getting in touch, Drophead. I'm sorry I don't know your actual name, but you, you got in touch with Jack and you said, Jack, long-time listener of the pod, please get this on Dean's radar. Um, and so you did. And... Yeah, it was very nice too. So basically, um, <laughs> this is quite funny. Also quite annoying. So he's, he plays in this game against Quadratero, um at the weekend. It, it's nil-nil. Um, on 75 minutes, he scores and it's a beauty too. He receives the ball just outside the box. Absolutely swells one into the top corner. It's beautiful the way that he does it. As soon as he does it, he, he takes off his shirt and he starts running away and some of his teammates are over the far side and they start to swarm around him. Now, part of the reason they start to swarm around him is because Soteldo has been booked in the 62nd minutes already and now he's taken his shirt off. And so while they're around him, he manages to put his shirt back on, hoping that nobody's noticed. But of <laughs> course they have, mate. Of course they have. Um, he gets a second yellow card for taking his shirt off. And he's sent off. Um, and before long, he's sat there back in the dugout. Well, he tries to sit back in the dugout. And then he realizes he can't even do that. He has to leave and go back to the changing rooms. Um, absolute melon. I mean, it's, it's devastating, really. Why Why can't you take off your shirt, though? Like, this could be yeah. thinking. I was like, I don't really understand, like, why this can't be done. I mean, like, what? What is the? It's a bit of a strange rule. It is a bit of a strange I mean, rule. Like I, I don't completely understand the, the the need to take off your shirt when you score a goal. Like that to me is is not yeah. a natural thing. But the, the, the conspiracy theorist answer is is sponsorship. It's like the, obviously sponsors pay a lot across to go across the front of your shirt and the celebration. That's not why a ref photo, would book them though. The, no, but that's why they might put the rules in and then the ref has to follow the rules. 
so I think it's rubbish. The, the, the idea that is, is cool. that the, the, cele- the celebration photo is like the most iconic photo. It's the most commonly circulated photo. And so I don't know if it's true, but well, the one I hear all the time from the conspiracy theorist is like basically it's the financial side of the game means that, you know, those well, that's the that of the week moment, as well then moment. because that rule is rubbish. To be fair, I mean, to I don't even know if it's it true. Was the, it was, it was the game. It was the game-winning goal, and despite the fact Tigres were down to nine at that point, they did because Ayala got sent out for the first half. Yeah, um, they saw this one out. So fair play to Tigres, big win, big win, and they'll be missing their main man next next game. So that's yeah, it looks like it. I mean, I obviously won't be tuning in for the next game anyway. But good luck to them. No, Drophead might let us know <laughs> if uh, well, what happens with, uh, yeah. with that. Yeah, it does look a lot of fun. I just don't have any more time in my scheduling for it. I'm afraid. Yeah, Keep us up to date, Drophead. That is the gibberish alarm. And uh, normally this would be a time to hand to Sam, but you've been on holiday, Dean, so uh, you're on gibberish. Yeah, I thought I'd do three surprising things about Chicago on the back of my trip. Um, So at three, how cold it was. I mean, I thought we were heading into spring. Christ, it's colder than winter it was. Um, Genuinely, I think it was colder than the winter we had in England. It was... It was annoying because in the build-up, like I knew we'd taken a bit of a gamble like first week of April, um, but I didn't think it would be as cold as this. And stupidly, I I didn't take gloves, didn't take a hat. I even saw the kids' gloves in the you boot. You even brought shorts. Yeah, no, I didn't go that far, but I didn't even take the kids' gloves. I saw them before we left too and was like, nah, it won't be that cold. Anyway, it was. It was colder. It was even colder than that. Um it's not even just like cold outside. It's the wind. Like I know it's the windy city, but that's not the reason it's called the windy city, but it should be because that wind is ridiculous, whether it's off the river or the lake. Um, and yeah, it just was annoying because I just had so many layers on all the time. I'd have my stupid big coat on. Um, so yeah, a bit surprised by the weather. That was annoying, but moving on Hang to, on, sorry, uh, sorry, this is a, this is a dumb question then. If it's not to do with the wind, why is it called the windy city? Oh, it's a political thing. It's about the way that, uh, windy politicians back in the day like spouting nonsense or something like that like you couldn't believe a thing they said so they called it the Windy City hmm. you have to go and Google it um, I don't know the ins and outs of it but I know it's political but yeah it's always a surprise to me to people that it, it's not that's not the reason it's called the Windy City because it would be apt anyway okay number two is that the best landmark for my trip to Chicago was Starbucks. It was <laughs> out of this world, lads. A five-story Starbucks that I went three times, and we and every time like, <laughs> we planned it out, we we're like, "What should we do today?" And we'd be like, "Should we go to that Starbucks again?" It was like, "Yeah, let's go back to that Starbucks family trip." Off we all go. Had to get the bus up there. Off we go into downtown. That's another annoying thing, by the way. Kids can't get in taxis, so we had to get the bus everywhere. Really annoying. Anyway. I can't believe this. This is like the thing I've learned the most this week. Dean told us this on on Monday's podcast, and I just couldn't believe that kids can't go in taxis in America. Yeah, like in in, for people outside of London, like in England, like you can just get in a black taxi with your kids, put them on your lap or hold them next to you and plug them in um, at basically any age, and you're fine, and they're covered for that. And you, you see your risk, like, of course, but... No, not in America. You can't do that. They have to be in child seats. I'm not sure what age that goes up to, but mine are four and one, and they certainly have to be at that point. Um, so, yeah, we had to get the bus every time we wanted to go any considerable distance. 
So anyway, get to the Starbucks, a five-story Starbucks, lads. And it, it's basically a theatre of coffee. I mean, you've got different stuff on every floor. You've got your, your typical coffee shop on, on one floor. The next floor up is like a, a bakery, unbelievable bakery as well. Like, you'd love it, Sam. Um, third floor, you've got like an experimental coffee shop where you can like see them trying out new stuff and like different coffee tastes and um, espressos and stuff like that. And on the fourth floor, you've got a cocktail bar, um, really vibey. Like it, it's genuinely a place people like seem to get dressed up to go and hang out in this place too. Like you meet up there and like I saw a lot of people having dates and stuff. The fifth floor is a rooftop. Obviously didn't get up there because I'd have been swept away and died. But um, yeah, that <laughs> that did look pretty cool from the pictures too. And also like the coffee was just like way, way better. Like yesterday I went into town here and to the Starbucks that's attached to Sainsbury's and had a vanilla latte in there, rubbish. The one at that reserve in Chicago is one of the best coffees I've ever had. So, yeah, surprising. My favorite landmark in the whole of Chicago is a Starbucks. Number one. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> Number one. Um, this is this came as a big surprise to me too. Went to Lou Malnati's for a deep dish pizza. Didn't really like it. Did, what? Wasn't fussed about it at all. It was a bit rubbish, to be honest. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Being not liking any pizza. It was, was like fine. Huge shocker, right? It was like... fine, but like, yeah, it was like the the crust and like the outside of it was so hard. Like it was like too hard, and then the pizza was like had so much tomato on it, not enough cheese. I think Giordano's, the one that we had last time. Yeah, I was going to say, why didn't you go back? Uh, the queues were massive every time. Like We did try to go to Giordano's on like day three, and they were like, uh, we've got a table free in an hour and a half, and then it's an hour's wait for your pizza. I was like, okay, well, obviously we're not waiting two and a half hours to have a pizza. Um, so, You've changed. And then <laughs> I got a family with me this time. Um yeah, you so, should have told them you know Mike McGee. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, there's a lot of chains of Giordano's and stuff now. Like, it seems to be more and more of a time ago. So, yeah, so it was like, oh, Lou Nati is like, that's a famous one too. I'll go there. And I won't be going back, to be honest. In fact, if I did go back, my dad had a thin crust and it was amazing. It was He said his was one of the best pizzas he's ever had. And he'd seen the deep dish and he was like, nah, not about that. And, um, yeah, I did have two more pizzas while out there. Both of them were thin crust. Both of them were way better, got to say. So that was a massive surprise to me. It was one of the reasons I went to Chicago was to have deep dish pizza, and I didn't enjoy it. Wow, wow there you have it. That is that is wow. the biggest that shock of the crazy. week, 100%. It really was. That is was. a big old shock. Yeah. Um, I've, right. uh, I've I've looked up the Windy City while uh, while you were talking, oh, yeah. Dino. I have too, um, <laughs> and it's uh, it's apparently a reference to the amount of hot air coming out of politicians' mouths. Yeah, uh, hunt, like over a hundred years ago. Yeah, um, so that is quite that is quite um, quite clever actually, and in fact that that's stuck is quite funny. It's mad. Yeah, isn't I it? like the Chicago. I like Chicago's embraced it. They were like, "Yep, that's what we are." Well, yeah, um, but, and they probably like knew that say, everyone else thought that it just make it really windy. Yeah, but it, yeah. I mean, it, it does seem weird that it is so windy. It's an average, average wind speed, twelve point three miles an hour. Not that windy. Yeah, 
Weird. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Right. Given all this nonsense, yeah, a lot of hot air coming out of our mouths. There's a lot of hot air coming here. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> the windy podcast is going to end uh, right now. And all that's left for me to do is to say thank you very much to Dean Jones. Welcome back, my friend. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much, Sam Siderag Gods. Cheers and goodbye. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and goodbye. Yeah, 100%. He's leaving the end of the yeah. football ramble. <laughs> Sam's going on his honeymoon. He's going on his honeymoon for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Dean comes um, back in just in time. I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna be missing for the rest of April and some of May. Wow, well, basically got, the rest of the season. We've got a couple of weeks with no Sam. Uh, Dean and I mm. are going to rustle up some fun things and get some more special guests. But uh, we are going to maybe or we might just have a two-week break ourselves, and we'll send you yeah. all in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't do breaks. I don't do holidays. You know this. Um, it's uh, one of those. Yes. Goodbye, Sam. Have a wonderful time on your honeymoon. We hope you have an amazing time um, over in Bali. If you're a Bali listener, go and find Sam. Or a Bali um, fan, send him don't get your shirt. Please, yeah. Please do not. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel said she'd love that. She said she'd absolutely love it. Right. I've been Jack Collins. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to Alex Stewart of TFO and The Athletic for joining us earlier and being part of the main ranking. We really appreciated that. It was a lot of fun. Um, thank you as ever for listening. And we will see you next week. Just Dean and I. Take it easy. Peace.